The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Father, thank you for the, that promise to not be anxious about anything but to cast our burdens on you, knowing that you care for us, that you love us. And Lord, uh, I know that there are many worries, there are many burdens, there are many griefs going on. And uh, I thank you that you are faithful, that you are powerful, that you are sovereign, that you work all things for our good. And we can trust you. We can do our best in areas of wisdom and, and work and how you've equipped us and called us, but ultimately we are not in control. And we can trust that you are. So we cast our cares on you and thank you for who you are. Lord, uh, use your word now. May your spirit give us ears to hear. And uh, may the truth of your word communicate to us and strengthen our faith and um, be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, John 11. We're going to finish the last, this last section starting at verse 45. John 11, 45 through 57. This, um, this is the end of the first book or the first half of John's gospel. Some refer to it as the book of signs where this first half of John's gospel focuses on the many miracles of Jesus uh, as a sign that, of who he is, that he is the Son of God. And, um, and then the second half of John's gospel, beginning with chapter 12, will, will be the last week leading up to the cross. So we're going to conclude this first section and... Um, Follow along as I read, starting at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to the town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. 
Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is God's word. And it's amazing. Here, this is coming off of an incredible event where Jesus called Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and he actually did. It's amazing how this one event could have such a polarizing response. When you think about that event, why would it create such different responses of the people? Some with great joy and some actually with hatred, thankfulness, and fear. Disciples following Jesus and religious leaders plotting to kill him. And then there are those, always those who are just in between, people who don't know really what to do, and they ask each other, I don't know, what do you think? And it's a good question for us. What do you think? What do you think about Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? We've come to the end of this, this uh, 11th chapter So John 11 ends with this great and awesome miracle calling a dead man back to life. And this miracle, it really, it forces the issue, doesn't it? It forces some kind of response and we see different responses. We, we, you know, we can ignore a lot of people now and throughout history and That's okay, it doesn't really make any difference in our lives. It doesn't affect our souls. But Jesus is one person that we cannot ignore. And we have to decide, are we for him or are we against him? We can't be half-hearted. We're either all in, or if we're not, then we're out. We're either completely for him or we're against him. And at some point, those in-between people... It'll be too late. You can't sit on the fence forever. You have to make a choice concerning Jesus. can't ignore him. It all comes to a head as Lazarus, four days in the tomb, stinking. There's no doubt. There's no wondering about what just happened. No, nobody's thinking that maybe he's unconscious. He's dead. He's rotting in the tomb. The mourners are there. They're doing their job. Jesus comes on the scene and with absolute, undeniable power and unique authority, he speaks to a dead man and he actually comes out of the tomb. It's not cloudy. There's no room for doubt or indifference. But you've heard it. You've heard people, some people foolishly say, 
God, I'll believe in Just give me a sign. Just show me something. Something up in the sky. Do something. You know, if you do this, God, I'm not clear on this. Show me yourself. And yet, even Jesus raising the dead didn't remove indifference, didn't remove opposition, didn't remove silly questions like that. In our human reasoning and expectations, we look at an event and it's hard to imagine how there could be division. And yet, there is. And that there is tells us something about our salvation. That seeing Jesus for who he really is, is not a matter of human reasoning. Salvation is not simply having some knowledge or seeing with natural eyes and being convinced by a good argument. No, the argument, the evidence was undeniable. And that there is still resistance shows us that salvation, it's a supernatural gift of grace, a spiritual resurrection. There is no excuse because God has made himself known and all are accountable to him. This is what Romans 1 describes to us. We only need to look at the design and beauty of his creation. We only need to observe that, that matter, the, the stuff of creation, that it, that it decays. And so it's obviously not eternal. It wasn't always there. So how did it get there? Obviously, there is a creator. There is obviously a maker. And creation reflects and shouts to the existence of an ongoing providence of God. And there is no excuse for saying, but God, you never showed me. You didn't give me that. Yes, it's flashing at us every day as we look around. I am your maker. You are responsible to me. God has not only given us general revelation of himself in creation, but he gives us special revelation of himself in his word. Speaking very specifically to us. He even sent his only son to take on flesh and walk among us. Giving us a, an obvious sign like the resurrection that shows us who he is. There is no excuse. But that people need more. This is evidence that the problem is not a physical one. It is a spiritual one. That people could witness Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb and yet still be divided. This tells us that there's something deeper going on. Jesus, he understood this fact. In, in, in fact, he tells a story in Luke 16 that I find really interesting. You know the story about a rich man who dies and goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. A place where on one side is paradise, on the other side is a place of great torment, and then there's a great chasm dividing the two. 
And in this story, the rich man begs Abraham to send back the poor man Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus. Same name, but interesting, isn't it? To send back Lazarus. Here's what the rich man says in Luke 16. Abraham, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that there may so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, so let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Can you imagine Someone you know who is dead coming back to you and warning you. Seems like hyperbole. But Jesus says, no, still not enough. That's not the issue. If you received Jesus, it was an act of God. What this teaching and the miracle of Jesus tells us is that we don't see Jesus for who He truly is unless God's Spirit regenerates us. Unless He does a supernatural work on our hearts. Unless He takes out a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Unless He heals spiritually blind eyes. Unless we're born again. There is no amount of physical evidence or human reasoning that can do this. And yes, God may use these things, but He is sovereign to save. He is sovereign to do the healing, to raise whom He will raise, to have mercy on whom He will have mercy. And John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel this very fact. To all who did receive Him, to all, all of you who are saved, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. No, that's not what saved you. But of God. If you received Jesus, if you believed in Him for your salvation... God's Word tells you how this miracle occurred. It wasn't because you saw some evidence and were convinced. It's not human will. It's nothing of the flesh. It's God. And again, when it comes to our sharing the Gospel, let this truth give you great confidence. God tells us to go and share His Gospel, and then He graciously uses our feeble, stuttering words, not getting it just right, He uses us to bring about the salvation of a soul. Where a dead person actually walks out of the tomb. It's God's work. So with this great miracle of Jesus, knowing the spiritual reality described in Scripture, it shouldn't surprise us that some receive Jesus and others still oppose him. And this is the result that we see at the beginning of our reading. Let's look at that. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, 
who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Interesting question. What are we to do? Why are they asking what are we to do? As if they're, they're, they're saying, Oh no, we've got a problem. Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. What are we going to do? What's the problem? What does it say that these religious leaders think of this incredible miracle as a problem? And what is the problem? Look at verse 48. They describe it. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ah, the idols are revealed. Believe in Jesus and trust in Him or fight for your place, your position, your nation. Keep in mind that these are, you know, we we read about Pharisees, religious leaders, and we just think of bad guys. But no, these these are the best men of the nation. They are elevated to the highest religious and political offices the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, men devoted to holiness. And they gather together, and likely before they begin this discussion, they probably prayed. They probably opened their, began their meeting in prayer. And yet the purpose of this meeting is to deal with the growing popularity of Jesus. There wasn't a charge against him. Nobody denied what he had just done. And you would think that they'd be asking, you know, wow, doing the things that he does, especially this, he must be from God. How can we support him? How can we we get behind these efforts? How can we encourage people to, to follow after him? You would think that would be the response especially of good guys, religious leaders, godly men. But instead of seeing how they might support him, they meet to figure out how best to oppose him, to thwart his mission. And they saw this as a great problem, wringing their hands, oh no, what are we to do? What's this problem? First, is that Jesus' spiritual authority revealed their lack. That's the problem that they're dealing with. It revealed their lack. It revealed their inadequate spiritual leadership. Nobody likes to be revealed as inadequate. The way in which Jesus actually cared for the sheep showed these men to be false shepherds with insincere motives. Motives of maintaining their privileged positions instead of actually ministering to the people. So they reasoned if we let them go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. 
implying the, people's gonna, the people are going to stop looking to us as their spiritual leaders. They're gonna, we're going to lose our power. Now, we tend to see these leaders as the bad guys. And in seeing them as the bad guys, we don't, you know, we think of ourselves as being pretty good. So we don't really identify with them. But what are we to learn from them? Okay, well, if you're a pastor, if you're in, in uh, leadership of the church, the application is pretty obvious here, isn't it? I should be doing this, or I shouldn't be doing this if it's about me. I shouldn't be getting up here and making it all about me and my sense of self-importance. Jesus is the head of the church. He's our authority. He is the one that we look to and follow and admire and worship. So it's obvious application for me or for the elders or, or anyone that gets up in a, in a position of leadership. Don't make it about you. It's about him. Well, what about you? And I would say, you're ministers too, you know. That's why you come to be equipped to do the work of ministry, to seek to meet the needs of others. We're all called to be ministers, so you're ministers. You're counselors too. Maybe not formally trained. Maybe don't have that certification to do so. But you give advice, don't you? All the time. You're always giving advice to someone in your life. And then the question is, is it biblical? Is it good advice? Are you a good counselor? You're a counselor. Are you a good one? You're a theologian. You have an opinion about God. You study his word. You speak those opinions of God to others. Maybe academically you're not a theologian, but practically speaking, you're a theologian. So, as you involve yourselves with people, as you seek to meet the needs of others, as you give counsel and speak about God, is it about you or is it about Jesus? What's your motive? Do you enjoy and want the praise of people? Well, we all do to some extent, don't we? But we need to fight against that temptation. Do these things motivate us to say what we say, knowing that people, to say what we know people want to hear? Or do we speak the truth in love? Do we say the hard thing? because we love them, because it's true, seasoned with grace. And isn't John the Baptist a great example to us? John saying, he must increase, I must decrease. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. The greatest thing that we can do for our family, for our friends, for our neighbors, is to point them to Jesus and help them to love Him all the more and not draw all the attention to ourselves. 
So we can learn from these religious leaders by not being in competition with Jesus. By not making our ministry about us. Jesus is not a threat to your identity. He is your identity. And we exist to point others to him. A second threat to these religious leaders had to do with the potential loss of the things that they loved. These men were concerned about a potential religious uproar as people got excited about Jesus. And if that happened, what would happen? Rome would come in and take away their place and their nation. And by place, they meant either the physical temple or they could have meant their privileged positions which were granted to them by Rome. And by nation, they meant You know, they had some limited self-governing. And this might go away if people get too excited and Rome has to come in. We might lose that. One commentator wrote, Jesus clearly had much support among the masses, and that was likely to grow rather than diminish. The outcome could well be an abortive popular rising, which the Romans would speedily and ruthlessly put down, and in the process impose direct rule with possible further desecration, if not destruction, of the temple. Jesus threatened the loss of what these religious leaders loved. These men were happy to, to teach their history and how God ha- is their strength and their shield, but when it came to their own situation... They were overcome with fear of Rome and what they might take from them. Even though Jesus, think about it, they're fearful of the power of Rome. And what did Jesus just just do? What kind of power is that? Knowing that he must be from God and here they're teachers of how God is their strength and shield and power and provides for them. And they're fearful of Rome? Instead of a right vision and focus on God, on His Word, instead of appealing to truth and a commitment to the God of their fathers, there was only policy and politics, only power and position that they were concerned over. And much like our day, there was no place for truth. Truth is irrelevant. Agenda. And pragmatic self-interest were the driving forces in their decisions. And this is a warning to us. They didn't apply the lessons of their faith to themselves. They were off course and had become a religion that hoped in earthly kingdoms of wealth and politics instead of the saving power of Jesus. And so instead of Jesus being the Messiah, to them he was... A threat. He was a threat to what they really wanted, their political agenda, their nation. Jesus demands a commitment to the Word and the power of God. He calls us to prioritize His kingdom, so much so that we're willing to lose everything. And if we actually do, if we actually do lose everything, 
We should have the attitude that says, as long as I have Jesus, I haven't lost anything. Really. He calls us to die. Die to sin and self, to take up the cross and follow Him, to be about His kingdom and His glory. Those are hard words. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a... That sounds challenging to me. Because I like my comfort. Jesus is a threat to my comfort. These words are a threat to my comfort. I'd rather talk sports and barbecue with my neighbor than talk about sin and judgment and hell and their need of a Savior. Jesus can be a threat to our pride and our desire to be people pleasers. To not say those hard truths. Jesus threatens our comforts. And if our agenda is ultimately an earthly agenda, he is a threat. So if we want to settle for comfort and earthly ease, then we shouldn't be too quick to look at these religious leaders and judge them. It's not wrong to be comfortable. But it is wrong to compromise truth. It is wrong to avoid our calling. So there's a sense in which I look at these leaders and, and, I, and I think, you know, I don't blame them for not wanting to lose their jobs. I can understand not wanting to upset the government and have your privileges taken away from you. But at what cost? They justified their actions because they didn't want anything to happen to the temple. And that seems like a good thing. We don't want the temple to be destroyed, right? They didn't want Rome to come in and desecrate it, destroy it. And they must have thought, you know, this Jesus guy is going to bring the government down on all of us. We've got to do something about this. So the question is, for us, how do we avoid such cynical pragmatism? Well, some things are more obvious than others, and one way for us to avoid such pragmatism, such compromises, to resolve, to always obey the commands of God's Word. It'd be much easier, much safer just to fit in with the thinking of our culture to compromise biblical truths in areas more and more we're confronted with areas of sexuality and marriage and sanctity of human life and pluralism. All religions are the same. I mean, there might be consequences coming for our church if we stand for biblical truth. Who knows, maybe, maybe the American church actually will understand what it means to be persecuted. It seems, doesn't it, that people more and more are becoming really bold in their violence toward people that they disagree with. People with a different worldview. God's Word, objective truth, that makes us really unpopular. And it's easy for 
you know, here I am, I'm, 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 I'm preaching to the choir. It's easy for me to say this to you. I'm assuming you agree with me. I, I think that you do. I think that you're saying amen. It's easy for me to say these, bring up these topics with you within the church for now. But already there's been so much change within the evangelical segment of the church. Moral, these moral disagreements, they used to be clearly divided between mainstream denominations of the church, liberal denominations, and then the evangelical church. But all you got to do now is go on Facebook and see your evangelical friends saying some really liberal things. And you're wondering, where is the line? What happened? This slow fade is becoming a quick slide into growing compromise of biblical truth for the sake of pleasing our culture. Not upsetting them for the sake of comfort and acceptance and not being labeled some religious nutcase. And if we compromise biblical truth for the sake of societal comfort, we are following in the footsteps of those who saw Jesus as a threat. We're choosing comfort and the status quo over biblical conviction. Obedience to God and ultimately to Jesus. So if we are to avoid cynical pragmatism of these religious leaders, then we must resolve to always obey God's word, to not twist it and shape it to fit our preferences. Secondly, we must always have God's kingdom in mind. His way of salvation, the good news of Jesus, praying for our leaders, sharing the gospel, having confidence that it is the power to change human hearts. And that's what we really need, is the change of human hearts and attitudes and ideas and worldviews. In the time of the Sanhedrin, they knew God's promise of a coming Messiah. And if they were prioritizing God's kingdom and not their own, they would have recognized Jesus and supported him. And he wouldn't have been a threat because they would have been after the same thing. In our day, God has promised to send forth his gospel and to draw many to himself. So again... Let me say that it is a good and noble calling to be involved in earthly justice and in laws that protect and preserve life. But don't neglect to seek first the kingdom of God. Put your hope in the power of the gospel. Recognize there is a spiritual battle going on. We need to be praying. This is our priority. And when we share the good news, we should understand that the resistance to the gospel is often like the resistance of these religious leaders. They knew, they knew Jesus was true. They didn't doubt what he had just done. They just didn't like it. They didn't like it and what it required of them. They weren't willing to go there. And likewise, people today, they're going to be resistant to Jesus because they love what they love. They don't want to pick up a cross and suffer 
scorn and ridicule being labeled. No, resistant, resisting Jesus and fitting in with society, it's much more comfortable. So the real problem that people need to get over is their unbelief. Unbelief. It fears the wrath of friends and society, the loss of money and comfort. Unbelief. It fears the loss of earthly things and doesn't believe that God and His wrath is what we should really fear. People need to turn from unbelief and believe the promise of God to save us from His wrath. A wrath that can only be averted through the cross of Christ. So instead of fearing man, fear God. And embrace the best possible news of being made right with Him. Yes, count the costs. Yes, our times are likely going to be much more costly in following Jesus. But His kingdom is not fleeting. His kingdom will last. God is in control. And providentially, in our text, amazingly, in our text we see that God used Caiaphas to prophesy the greatest truth of all. Ironically, not knowing his words will be prophetic, he says to the council, you know nothing at all. He know nothing at all. He didn't know what he was saying. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, the leader, the high priest, is the ultimate pragmatist. He encourages a lesser evil in order to prevent a larger one in his thinking. Thinking that it's better to kill one man for the sake of many people. For the sake of a whole nation. He had a good concern that the temple not be desecrated by Rome. But he didn't realize, he didn't have a clue what the temple really was, apparently. What is the temple? The temple's a, a picture, it's a type and shadow of what? Jesus. And he's worried about it being desecrated and destroyed. And what is he doing? What is he plotting and planning? The real and greatest desecration is the one that he's about to commit. And this is what we read in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. He thought he was looking out for the safety of Jerusalem. But in reality, he ensured its destruction. And in rejecting the true Messiah, the Jews went on to follow false messiahs who led them to revolt against Rome, which resulted in its terrible and bloody destruction in A.D. 70. The very steps that they took to save their, their nation destroyed their nation. You cannot frustrate the plans of God. The Bible says, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. It was the plan of God to overturn these evil, false religious leaders. For we read in verse 51, He, Caiaphas, 
did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He prophesied. The greatest, most tragic of all ironies is that Caiaphas had spoken the truth. He spoke not understanding or intending what the providence of God ultimately communicated through him. Caiaphas, without really knowing, answers the greatest question. Why did Jesus die? He was a substitute. One sacrifice for many. In Caiaphas's words, one man should die for the people. It was a vicarious sacrifice. Vicarious, meaning that Jesus died in the place of you, of others. And sacrifice, meaning that he gave himself as a payment for their sins. We read in Isaiah prophesying concerning this, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The true reason why one man should die for the people was not to spare them from Rome, but to spare them from the righteous wrath of God. And for many, they might hear this and think, come on, you overdoing it a bit? Why all this sacrifice and bloody stuff? It's just sin. What's the big deal? Some might have that attitude about sin not being a big deal. Or the response might be, well, that's not my God. My God is a God of love, not of judgment. Yes, God is love. And thankfully, when you experience evil from another, we have a God who sees and knows and will deal with every evil with perfect justice. And if God simply ignored it, if he weren't just, then that would be the most unloving thing of all. If he did nothing, if he would, he would neither love us nor would he love what is most valuable of all, his own holiness, his own perfection. If he didn't deal with sin, with crimes against himself, people's sins which defy him and spit in his face, disregarding that he is our maker. If he cared nothing for his holy perfection and ignored sin, then there would be nothing, nothing worthy of our praise, nothing to joyfully worship, and we would ultimately have no heaven. So thankfully, God is, yes, God is love, and a loving God is perfectly just. And there's no greater display of love and justice than the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus for you and me on the cross. He lovingly took our place. And the justice of God was satisfied as one man willingly gave himself for his people. And not just a man, 
One man can't die for another man and be right with God. Speaks to his unique nature, his deity. He alone is able to pay the price. And so what are we to do with Jesus? We need to trust him, for one. Trust him with all your heart. Be willing to lose everything in order to gain the greatest treasure of all. Let's pray. Oh God, we worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. Father, we praise you for your glorious grace, for your love in sending your only Son to us. Thank you for your sacrifice in doing so. Father, help us to seek first your kingdom and trust you in all things. Thank you for Jesus for showing us your glory in him. Thank you for the fact that we are so undeserving, and yet he willingly gave himself for us, taking our place, paying our debt of sin, taking the wrath that we deserve. Father, thank you for inviting us into your presence this morning, for the joy of singing your praises, the grace of the meal in which we have received. Thank you that in this, your church, we come to give and to receive, to serve one another and be blessed by brothers and sisters in Christ, to give you the praise that you so richly deserve and to receive from you grace. And we need your grace each day. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us who lets us know that we belong to Jesus, who guides us in the truth of your word. God, we need you and we thank you that you are ever with us. Make us bold for you. Help us not to be afraid. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.